Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Jason Crichton, and Jason is the CEO and founder of Conserve the Wild, as well as the host of the Conservation Unfiltered Podcast. Um, <clears throat> for some of you that may not know, Jason uh, actually this year, uh, with his work through his Conservation Unfiltered podcast, won the 2% for Conservation Media Award in the written and audio uh, category. Um, what started off really um, as a way for Jason to give back and to kind of do uh, his part uh, really on a larger scale uh, has, you know, with Conserve the Wild, you know, he, he branched out and wanted to really just have a platform, uh, have a way to help spread the message about, you know, the outdoors, conservation and all that, which, you know, started uh, the podcast and has been doing extremely well with it and having a lot of really great conversations with a lot of great guests. Um, Jason and I, throughout the course of the conversation, we get to kind of talk about his path uh, into, you know, not only the outdoors, but conservation, um, when it was that he decided to kind of take that next step and, and try to really uh, expand his reach, uh, if you will. Um, and we kind of really get to have a pretty in-depth conversation about conservation in general. Um, you know, what Jason thinks is kind of plaguing or uh, what is kind of the biggest obstacle that we face uh, right now in terms of the outdoors and conservation uh, and possibly, you know, what we can do to, to help rectify that. Um, and, you know, not only that, but really just the importance of it, um, how we can get new people uh, involved and, you know, where, you know, he thinks that kind of the biggest opportunity that we have as hunters and anglers and avid outdoor recreationists, what we can do um, to, to help spread that message to those that are maybe not utilizing it. 
uh, in the same ways or maybe those who just don't really uh, value it the same way that we do. So uh, really fun conversation. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, so episode 64, Jason Crichton. Uh, before we get into the episode, though, I want to take a minute to tell you about our partners over at Stone Glacier. Uh, if you haven't already, definitely be sure to download the Stone Glacier app, whether on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, and if you have downloaded the app, you recently saw that uh, Stone Glacier just launched their first uh, product in the uh, black label line. Um, really sweet jacket that they have coming out. Um, you know, one of the things that Stone Glacier really likes with a lot of their uh, gear, especially like the clothing side of it is kind of giving you that dual use, that dual purpose. Um, and this black series, this black label jacket, excuse me, um, is no different. Uh, it's great for, you know, really any type of outdoor pursuit for hunting. Um, and then also it's a great just jacket that you can wear around town, serves multiple purposes. Um, and if you're with hunting season, you know, in a lot of places starting uh, later this month, uh, early next month, uh, whatever, uh, if you're looking for a last minute, some last minute gear, be sure to check out stoneglacier.com. They've got packs, they've got base layers, outer layers, they've got different sleep systems, tents, you know, sleeping bags, a lot of cool accessories, a lot of really cool, just kind of everyday wear. Um, you're not going to be disappointed with whatever you decide to purchase from there. Uh, so again, check them out, stoneglacier.com. All right. Joining me today, I have the CEO and founder of new nonprofit, Conserve the Wild, as well as the host of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast, Jason Crichton. Jason, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Marcus? I'm doing well. I'm uh, I'm glad that we can sit down. Uh, I've been familiar with your podcast for a while, and then obviously you, you gained a little bit more recognition uh, with uh, winning the uh, 2% for Conservation written and media, or written and audio uh, media award this year. So I'm excited to hear more about kind of your story, the nonprofit. Obviously, let's talk about the podcast as well. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I, I have to say it's uh, it was humbling and very unexpected. Uh, whenever I had Jared on the podcast, uh, on my podcast, uh, talking about and that was sort of like the first big announcement from my side that I won. It was it, it's it what like I said, humbling and unexpected. I definitely did not expect to be uh, winning that award. Just humble little old me with um, this sort of hobby podcast I got going. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, um, did I mean, did you know you were even up for it? Uh, did you know you were nominated? Anything like that, or was it just you know completely out of the blue? Yeah, uh, to be completely honest, I nominated myself. Okay, uh, and the reason why I did that. Um, quite honestly, was just to get some exposure. I thought, um, you know, I've been a individual member of 2% for Conservation pretty much since they started out. And I knew that there were going to be committee members, you know, voting on that stuff. So I thought, you know, if I can just get, you know, five or six more people to, to know about what I'm doing, that's five or six more people. So I was looking at it more of um, a marketing as opposed to like, hey, I think I'm doing something that, that should be getting an award. And right. um, it, it blew up a whole lot more than than I thought it would. No, that's that's awesome. And I, it's it's got to feel a little weird, you know, nominating yourself or something. But, you know, obviously, like you said, you weren't doing it because you wanted all this like recognition and you thought that like, you know, what you were doing was, you know, something great, which it, don't get me wrong, it absolutely is. You know, I think anytime that we're, or, you know, people are having um, 
conversations about conservation. I think it's always super important. Um, but I'm glad that to see that you won. And because like you said, anytime that we can kind of further the conversation or further the discussion around conservation and its many, you know, forms and fashions, I think that's all the better. I agree hundred uh, percent. I'm the first person to say like, I'm not a marketing guy. Uh, I'm a school teacher by profession. So, um, you know, I do, you know, the things that I do just because I think they're worth doing and I don't really tell a whole lot of people about them. So yeah, it was definitely really weird to nominate myself. It was weird to make these marketing social media posts for myself. Like, Hey, look what I won. Look what I did. Everyone that that's not my personality. Um, so that was the weird part of all of it. But I mean, if, if other people are liking what I'm doing, then, uh, you know, I appreciate that 100%. Yeah. It's <clears throat> social media is weird like that where I never feel super comfortable. Like, I mean, because obviously I have the podcast, but then I have my apparel brand, uh, that kind of coincides with the podcast as well, or that I, you know, started, you know, well before the podcast, and like, I talked about this just recently with someone, or maybe I was on someone else's podcast. Like, it always feels weird for me to like plug the company during the podcast because like, like that's not what the podcast is about, right? But people are always like, "Man, like you're you're missing a pretty good opportunity to to you know spread awareness or like help build your brand and this and that." I'm like, yeah, maybe it just it it feels a little cheap to kind of to to do it that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, one hundred percent. If you if you look at my personal um, and, and even conserve the wild social media profiles, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad on there too. Like as far as like, hey, I went hunting today, or I went and you know, I, I made something in the kitchen. Um, there's a lot of successes on there because you know, you do want to let people know when you do things well. Mm -hmm. But there's also like, hey, I didn't see a single deer today, <laughs> you know, yeah. and. That, that's okay. There, I, I feel like there's a, a lot of profiles uh, out there that only show the good. You know, that's what everyone talks about. When you're comparing yourself to someone else's social media presence, they're only showing the good. Uh, I want to be very transparent and be like, listen, my, my life's not perfect. My hunting life's not perfect. I, I'm a culinary teacher and I tell my students all the time, I screw stuff up in the kitchen all the time. But that's how you learn and, you know, decide to make something a little bit better later. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me how, okay. So you kind of already answered one of the questions that I had for you was, you know, is, you know, hosting the podcast, running the nonprofit, like, is that your full-time job, which you, like I said, you kind of answered and that you're, uh, you're a teacher, your, your regular profession is a teacher. And then you just mentioned you're a culinary teacher. So how did you get into that? How did I get into being a culinary teacher? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I was in high school, uh, I had a very influential teacher and coach, uh, baseball coach, that um, he just started his coaching or his teaching career. I think it was my sophomore year of high school. I was actually in his first ever class. I had him first period. Um, and he was very influential. He was one of the best teachers uh, I've ever had. And that's including, you know, college professors and, you know, so even the you know, continuing education classes I've had to take since he was, he was just absolutely awesome. Um, so Zach Jankowski, uh, a little shout out to you. Uh, and he sort of mentored me for three years on that. Um, I really, 
I, I really enjoyed, I volunteered a lot for younger baseball teams as sort of like mentor coach type thing. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be a baseball coach. Um, he saw me working with those kids and was like, why don't you be a teacher? Okay. So I started looking into it. I really enjoyed history and thought I'm going to be a history teacher. And then my senior year, I really loaded up on a lot of history classes as electives and took AP European history. And that information, I hear you chuckle, that information (laughs) that you get in that class is as dry and boring as the title sounds. It is (laughs) miserable. And I was like, I cannot do this the rest of my life. So um, I actually had a cousin who was a family and consumer science teacher. And if that term sounds weird, it's because it used to be called what most people would know as a home economics teacher. Okay. And I thought, you know what? I like to cook. I'm an athlete that's real into nutrition. Let's give it a try. So it just happened to coincide that the college I was going to uh, on a baseball scholarship also had a family consumer science education curriculum. So I went for it. And uh, yeah, that was that was uh, well, I'm, I'm starting my 12th year, I think, this year as a teacher. And um, I love it. Uh, no, the the what will end up being the nonprofit and this part my podcast is not a full-time job, but I will say I would like it to be. So that's sort of the, um, that's sort of the, not the end goal of everything, but that's sort of the, one of the next steps that I would like to take. Yeah. So kind of quick sidebar here, where did you play baseball at? I played baseball at a small, um, what is now division two. But when I first started there was in the NAIA, which is different than the NCAA, um, a small school in Southwestern Pennsylvania, Seton Hill university. Um, I was, I, when I got there, it was actually only the second year that the baseball team was in existence. Um, and then, so within the, by the third year of, of existence, we actually went to the NAI World Series in Idaho. And um, since then, they've switched to NCAA Division Two and have been to the uh, Division Two World Series twice now. So just can't quite get over the hump of winning the World Series. It's the, the head coach there. Um, we used to call him dad uh, because he was basically like a second dad to all of us. He's tremendous, just an awesome human being. Yeah, so I I played uh, sports in college as well, and I played Division Two. So uh, I was I'm always curious, you know, like where where people kind of play, you know, where you know what their path was like, you know, especially through college. And I know that that playing a sport in college, I mean, those coaches and the teammates, I mean, you spend so much time with those guys, right? And it's amazing the impact that especially coaches can really have because. You know, I mean, those are some pretty formidable years, right? 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Uh, You're kind of learning how to live on your own as an adult, um, really kind of understanding what it's like to have responsibilities. You don't have a parent there waking you up in the morning, making sure you get to school. I mean, it's it's a lot of, you know, added or not added. It's a lot of new responsibility, right? And those coaches do such an amazing job of, you know, acting kind of like, you know, a second dad or a second mom, depending on the sport and, and your coach that uh, that you have while while you're away, you know, on your own. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I was a pretty good kid in high school, you know, as far as a human being, but I was a little flaky. Um, you know, there were times where I'd say I'd do something and then decide I don't really feel like doing it and just n- not show up or not do it. And yeah. 
that didn't fly in college whenever you're playing a sport, uh, yeah. especially for the coach that I had. So, uh, and all quite honestly, it didn't fly with my teammates either. So, um, it, like you said, it was the, the person I am now is 100% because of my time spent playing sports, at, playing a sport at a division two college that, that I, you know, chose. And if it wasn't for that, that things would be drastically different in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I can say the same about mine. The, the accountability aspect of it, um, is it's really hard to kind of put into words or to put like a value on, I guess, because you don't realize it at the time, but as you get older and all those, those lessons and things that whether you were kind of taught them the hard way or not throughout college, um, they stick with you and they really, like you said, help shape the person that you become as an adult. Yeah, 100% uh, to the point where, you know, I decided one morning not to go to class. And uh, that weekend, uh, my punishment was running six miles, which was not fun. <laughs> I'm not a runner. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I don't care what I don't care if you are a runner. Six miles is still a long way to run. So I got to ask. So as it pertains to the outdoors, you know, how was it that you were really kind of first introduced to it or what did your introduction to the outdoors look like? I, I am the, um, the quintessential traditional hunter. I'm the, uh, getting close to now middle age, uh, at 35, uh, white male that came from a hunting family. You know, it was, um, my grandfather and my uncle who married into the family and uh, my dad who actually was a, a didn't start hunting until after he married my mom uh, you know it was going out with them uh, I mean spending time at, at a family property or our cabin you know from the time I was two years old uh, and waiting and really wanting to go hunting probably from the time I was six, but in the state of Pennsylvania at the time, there was no mentorship program. So I had to wait until I was 12 years old. And, uh, I distinctly remember, um, turning 12 in February and asking my dad, when are we going hunting? And he, for my first hunting sort of trip, which was really just down the road, actually pulled me out of class, put I did not have to go to school on a, on a Friday, which was huge. And, um, we went, uh, spring Turkey hunting in the morning, which that was not something that my family did, but he, my dad just knew that, you know, I wanted to go so bad. He needed to get me out into the woods. And, uh, while we weren't successful and, and I, I fell asleep because I wasn't <laughs> used to waking up at four, four thirty in the morning. Uh, you know, it was still, it was so exciting. I was, I was just so happy to be out in the woods and, and doing, something that I had watched my, you know, male family members do for years. Now, when you got into high school and obviously, um, you know, I'm not sure if you played other sports aside from baseball, but that kind of, you know, the springtime, I mean, obviously there's, there's turkey hunting, but it's not like, you know, if you're playing a fall sport where it takes up a lot of time. So did you stay pretty active, like with hunting and the outdoors through high school and into college? Um, or was it one of those things that kind of, you know, took a back seat to, to sports and, you know, to just kind of being a regular college kid? So, I mean, baseball for me was, you know, 365 days a year, um, played in the spring, played in the summer, played in the fall. And then in the cold winters in Pennsylvania, it was spending time, um, 
you know, indoor batting cages and, and things like that. Um, I definitely carved out some time to do some hunting in the fall. Deer was really the big thing for us. So, um, I did do some deer hunting. I, I distinctly remember my, my dad being one of the greatest dads in the world, um, in high school, you know, taking, dropping me off at the high school football game to watch the game and then not leaving until, you know, 10 o'clock or 1030 to drive an hour and a half to camp and then waking up super early Saturday morning to go hunting. Um, so it, yes, it did take a back seat, but I definitely carved out some time to do that in college. It really took a back seat. Um, I was lucky to get out, uh, my first three years of college. I maybe only got out two or three days the entire year to deer hunt. Uh, my senior year, I started taking a little bit more time to go out just because my class load was lessened. Um, and then I coached baseball for uh, five years after uh, I graduated from college, and I really did not hunt very much at all. And then when I decided um, that, that coaching wasn't really how I wanted to spend my time, I got back into hunting. So it's sort of gone for full circle as far as being super into it and then sort of taking a back seat and then now getting really into it again for the last um, eight or, or so years. Yeah, I'd forgotten about the, the fall ball aspect of college baseball because I remember, I mean, I played a fall sport, uh, but I remember the baseball team always had like a fall season. And then when baseball was in season, uh, you know, during the spring, uh, we had like our spring our spring practices and whatnot. So yeah, I kind of forgot about that aspect, but that's, was there like a, aside from just having more time by not coaching, was there anything that kind of got you back into it or was it just like, okay, I have the time now I'm going to, you know, get back to spending more time doing it. Uh, the biggest thing was having more time, uh, you know, just not, not having, fall baseball games on Saturdays because in Pennsylvania, um, up until this past year, you, you can't hunt on Sundays. Right. Um, so now we can hunt on three Sundays. Great. Woo. Um, (laughs) but, um, you know, that, I, that definitely had the biggest impact was just having more time to hunt, but there, there was a little bit of a pull there because I, I started to notice, um, not notice, but become aware of the fact that my grandfather was getting older. Um, and you know, when, once, once a a family member starts reaching in their late seventies, um, you start to realize that, um, you know, the time with them is finite. It's not going to be forever. So, um, he still liked to go to camp. He doesn't, you know, he only hunted maybe three or four days a year, but he liked going to camp, um, you know, even during archery season. So that was time I got to spend with him. And, and that was, you know, that, that's, definitely the reason why I go to camp as much as I do is because I get to spend time with family that, you know, otherwise when we're home, we don't because there's so much other stuff to do. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the the things I really love about not just hunting, but the outdoors in general is the, the, the kind of coming together of friends and family, right? I mean, I mean, you come from a very uh, a state with a very rich tradition, with like Pennsylvania when it when it comes to hunting. I mean, I'm here in Michigan, so it's it's very similar in that regard. Um, I mean, I've told this you know on a few uh, episodes in the past, like opening day of rifle season uh, where I grew up, we had no school. Um, it was it was like this national holiday, so to speak. At least it's, it's same thing in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So it's uh yeah, it's a very cool thing, um, and I agree that you get to a certain point in your life and and you realize, right, time is finite, right? Like 
you can almost like see an end or at least you're much more aware that the end is is much closer than it is further away um so yeah you want to take all those opportunities that you can to to spend time with you know your dad with your with your uncle with your grandfather uh whatever the case is because i mean those are when you when you get to be you know your grandpa's age or your dad's age whatever and you look back on your time spent outdoors i mean those are the memories that that stick out right when you were you know 13 or 14 years old at deer camp with with the guys right and and you were just kind of taking it all in and and getting to experience you know something that you had watched family members do for so many years and then you get to an age where you can really appreciate it and it's almost like you know for there's a stretch in there where people kind of at least I know I did like you almost take it for granted right you're like oh yeah deer season's coming up we're going to spend time at deer camp you know everyone's going to be together this is great and almost in the moment you don't take time to appreciate it but it's not until later when you realize hey these days are numbered like I need to I need to get this in as much as possible because this isn't always going to be here yeah I mean really it's the evolution of the hunter um every hunter goes through an evolution where you know they just want to go out and then they want to kill a bunch of stuff and then they want to kill big things or, you know, hit check boxes. Not every hunter goes through it, but I definitely did. I wanted to, to kill a bunch of deer when I was younger. And then eventually I wanted to kill the biggest buck I could. And I don't get me wrong. I would still like to, to kill a Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young buck. Um, not real possible in the area that we hunt. Um, but you know, I would like that, but now I'm to the point where it's like, you know what? I just like spending time outside. I like coming back to camp and talking about what we saw, um, and spending those, you know, off hunting times with my family members. You know, I, I really appreciate that more now than I did when I was younger. Yeah. It becomes much more about the experience than the actual act of, of like, you know, killing a deer, for example. So, <clears throat> all right now. I, so I feel like we kind of have a, a bit of a, a baseline, let's call it, uh, for, you know, your past, you know, how you got into the outdoors, what it is, that you do um, for your professional career. So let's talk about uh, Conserve the Wild, the nonprofit that you recently started. So kind of walk me through that process. What made, what made you decide to start it? Um, when did you actually start it? You know, kind of all of that. Yeah, so uh, technically it is not a nonprofit yet. Um, it, it's an, technically right now it's an idea. Um, okay. The process that I was going, th- that I'm going through is try to build um, some following first and then try to leverage that following into uh, starting a nonprofit because something w- that I was not aware of uh, when I first got this idea to start a nonprofit was that it costs a lot of money to not make money. <laughs> <laughs> the government, uh, you know, being certified as a nonprofit and all that kind of stuff, um, the government requires you to pay for all that and to prove that you're, um, you know, to prove that you don't need to, you know, pay tax money to them. Um, and I didn't realize that. So, uh, we're not quite there yet. We're doing some sort of crowdfunding, um, at this point. And I'm, I'm working with a couple businesses to try to get some, some funding just to, to get some startup, uh, funding, which is, is tough with everything that happened with COVID. Uh, of course, you know, I wanted to do a, a big launch last year with it and that, got put on hold. Um, but really how this whole idea started was that my, you know, my grandfather, uh, did one of 
the best things for me that he ever could have 25 years before I was even born. Uh, he bought 25 acres and then a couple years later, another 25 acres and then another couple years later, um, 32 acres and in Northwestern Pennsylvania, uh, and built a cabin there. And that 72 acres is where I spent a lot of weekends growing up and I absolutely, you know, it's what instilled my love for the outdoors and where we hunt. Um, and I started looking at it like, okay, he, he did something big by setting aside this piece of land for our family to experience the outdoors. What can I do that could be on the same level that he did? Right. Like how can I make that kind of impact? Right. And my first thought was, well, I'll just buy more land, right? Like, let's make the property bigger. The problem uh, with that is that as a teacher, I don't make enough money to pay the current land prices. Uh, They're not crazy expensive in that area, but they're still expensive enough to be prohibitive for me in my line of work. So that wasn't, that option was not completely off the table, but it's definitely was more of a long, long term goal. In the short term, I realized I could just give back to wildlife and, and sort of get into conservation by managing the habitat, right? Like make the land more, make it better for the wildlife that use it, whether that's deer and turkey or, you know, the songbirds that, you know, that come through uh, the area as well. So it really started there. Uh, I wanted to learn everything I could about um, animal biology and about habitat and really try to apply that to the property. And it was, it only took about two years after I planted my first food plot that I watched a yearling, a very, I mean, this was early in archery season. So, you know, basically a fawn that had just lost its spots eating something that I had planted and walking into that food plot in a way that I wanted him a, a deer to walk into that food plot. You know, I'd manipulated the space so that they walked a certain way and then I'm providing nutrition to this deer. And I then realized like, yeah, that's what this is about. It's about making the area better for that herd. And I wanted, as the years went on where I, I did, we've continued to do habitat work, uh, planting trees, um, doing timber stand improvements to provide more, uh, forage on the landscape, things like that. I really wanted to up, up my game. You know, I can only work on these 72 acres. I want to do more. So the way that I looked at doing more was if I can start a nonprofit that can purchase land that would otherwise be turned into housing developments or commercial space, if we could set this land aside so that wildlife has a place to thrive and then work on it. That's what I want to do. That's how I can give back on a larger scale. Um, you know, urbanization is something that is that, that started, you know, in, in the early 19th or early 20th century. Um, and it's really gotten crazy here in Western Pennsylvania. And, I want to mitigate that as much as possible. Um, and that was really the, the big defining moment of, of 
deciding I want to start a nonprofit that works solely to mitigate urbanization. And there's a whole, there's a couple different tentacles of, of ways that I envision doing that. Um, you know, that isn't just purchasing land. Cause obviously that's a, an expensive, you know, process. Right. Um, but you know, that is the main goal of everything that I'm working towards now is just mitigate the effects of urbanization. Would you say that urbanization and urban sprawl, like that's the the biggest threat that we kind of face in the conservation world today? 100%. And it's multifaceted. I mean, obviously, um, you know, urbanization is just a, it's a placeholder name that has a bunch of different effects. So obviously with urban sprawl, yeah, it, we're, if we're taking up more land that the wildlife would typically use for human use, then that's going to negatively affect the wildlife. Um, so that's where purchasing land to sort of keep in a conservation easement style um, would benefit those wildlife. But then also urbanization in the effect of just more people, a greater percentage of people living in an urban uh, you know, center, that that affects how they view nature and how they view wildlife. Um, you know, if you're, for example, living in downtown Pittsburgh and you don't see deer and coyotes and turkey and hawks on a daily basis, you're not going to value that wildlife as much as someone like myself who grew up in the outdoors and saw all this wildlife. Um, so that is where the podcast really comes in, in trying to reach more people and and really try to explain to them the benefits to the outdoors and the benefits of wildlife and why we need to, even if, you know, obviously I want to do things that are going to uh, make the deer population healthier because I hunt deer, but I also want to do things that are going to make the peregrine falcon population healthier. That's going to make the, um, you know, the bee population healthier as well, because all of it's interconnected. We are not separate from wildlife. We, we are intermingled with wildlife and with nature. We're, it's all one big ecosystem. We're just a small part of it. And if we continue on the path we're on, I really feel like we're going to hit a point of no return. And that's very scary to me. Yeah. Isn't it weird that, or how, you know, like you just said, we're, we're all part of this, this giant ecosystem and we are just a small part, but we're also the most destructive part of that same ecosystem. It, and it all comes down to, we just don't value it. We, we look at ourselves as being above it, uh, it, you know, as a, as a whole, uh, the human population as a whole. And we're not, we're not above it. Um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of insect die-offs. We've had uh, a lot of problems with bees and, um, all of a sudden, you know, the, the almonds that you buy at the grocery store that you think, had, you know, that it's just almonds. They're always there. Well, now they're either not there or they're vastly more expensive all because, you know, I'm going to spray my yard with herbicides and pesticides and contribute to, to bee die off. So, I mean, this is probably a kind of a tough question to answer or, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of kind of moving parts to, to this answer to this question, but like, what, how do you think we, we combat, I don't want to say combat that, but how do you think 
that we we change that perception, right? With people who are just you know who who just don't care, who just don't value you know wildlife and wild places the same way that you know people like you and I do, who who grew up you know learning to appreciate and kind of having those experiences in the outdoors. You know how do we get a, how do we get that message or that same thought process across to you know people on the other side of the fence? Let's say. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. Um, but to me, it's very simple and it's, I'm biased in this because I'm a teacher, but it's education. And part of education is experience. We need to provide experiences for people who otherwise would not get those experiences so that they can experience wildlife. Um, they can experience the outdoors. And when someone does that, they're going to gain a greater appreciation, you know, my wife is wonderful, but she is a suburban kid. Um, she's not as outdoorsy as I am. Um, she'll go in the outdoors with me from time to time, but she's not going to live there. That That's not, you know, that's a different personality type. But every time that we go out together, that we're in the outdoors, I can see her level of appreciation get a little bit, a little bit bigger for wildlife in the outdoors. And, you know, she's exposed to it a lot because of me. Think about, you know, the kid that lives in a downtown city center that doesn't have the means, doesn't have transportation, financially can't uh, get any, you know, get out to an outdoors setting, um, might not have, probably doesn't have a mentor or anyone around that is into the outdoors and would be able to be willing and able to take them out there. So we need to educate people that the outdoors and wildlife are important. And then we need to provide them with experiences that solidify and sort of really push home that education that we're giving them. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And I, I could not agree more with you. I mean, just kind of my own, like, I guess like story in regards to that is, you know, I have, I mean, he was the best man in my wedding. Uh, I met him in college from a, a very suburban area. Um, really, I mean, almost like, you know, a polar opposite upbringing of what I had. And I mean, this was, we were probably in our mid twenties, I would say at this point. And somehow we got on the conversation of the topic of deer. Um, but he did not realize that every year, deer drop their antlers and then you know springtime early summer that they grow back he did not like he just couldn't like wrap his head around that and you know i just took for granted that everyone knew that right like oh geez i mean that's that's common knowledge but if you're not exposed to you don't have those experiences that education you don't have any of those things i mean how would you know that right if you've never if you've never seen a lot of deer in your lifetime or, you know, deer that you've seen are, you know, primarily doe, let's say, you just, you never see the difference. Or, you know, if he sees a deer in October, or if he sees a deer in, you know, March or April, like, how does he know the difference between the two if everything he's ever seen doesn't have antlers? Or if he sees it in the fall, it's only got antlers. So he just assumes, well, if I see the same deer again, or another deer with, you know, I see another buck, it's probably the same one. The antlers just got a little bit bigger this year. Like he, he didn't understand that. And I think it's, it's scenarios and instances like that where I need to take a step back and be like, wow, there's, there are a lot of people who, who don't have that, who don't have that same, um, 
level of experience or knowledge that that I'm fortunate enough to have, and I need to do all that I can to to help them understand and and just like you said, educate them on kind of the ways of nature sometimes. Yeah, uh, you know, I've because I'm exposed to it a lot. Uh, you know, I have done a lot of episodes, and I'm I'm a big. Uh, proponent of the R3 movement, right? The recruit, reactivate, retain for hunting because hunting numbers, uh, you know, according to the studies are, are dipping. Um, as I've talked to more people, uh, both experts and, you know, just the sort of general public, what we have defined as R3 engagements are not working. And it's because we're not applying it to the correct type of person. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm a member of Pheasants Forever. I'm going to be, um, you know, taking my dogs to our local chapters, youth pheasant hunting day, uh, you know, this year, you know, in a couple, couple weeks. And I know before I even get there that the kid that I'm going to be paired up with his dad already probably hunts. That's not a kid that we need to inspire to hunt. His dad's already doing that. Right. We we need to go after the people that don't hunt already, right? If we want to increase our numbers, you know, why did I start hunting? Because my family hunted. Um, why does my brother-in-law not really hunt? Because his family didn't hunt. Um, he just really started hunting whenever I started dating his sister. Because now all of a sudden he saw someone doing that. He was exposed to it. So we need to look at the non-traditional potential hunter and we need to try to get them into hunting and that example is can be 100% extended to every other aspect of non-hunting outdoors right we need to go into city centers we need to go into towns we need to go to the kids and and adults that you wouldn't think would be into hiking or climbing and expose them to it because you never know. They, they might decide, Hey, I really want to do this. Yeah. And what's really cool. And and on that same note is seeing some of these organizations like NDA, for example, who started their uh, field to fork program. That's getting a lot of these, you know, people who, who haven't been exposed to it or haven't had the means um, to be able to get outdoors and, and, you know, pairing them with, with mentors, with people who have, you know, grown up living that lifestyle and exposing them to the outdoors and exposing them in a way that they can retain the information, right. And and show them, you know, that it is much more accessible than maybe they originally, excuse me, originally realized. And, you know, hoping that you, you know, you do retain, uh, those people going forward and that, you know, there's this trickle down effect that then, you know, if they, if, if you're mentoring someone who, you know, doesn't come from a, a hunting family and then, you know, you get them involved and, you know, they, it, it sparks this passion for them, you know, maybe it, it trickles down to their kids or maybe, you know, their brother or, you know, their father, you know, maybe, you know, he's, he gets exposed, you know, later on in life. I mean, there's all these great benefits that can come from, you know, exposing the non the non-hunters or the non-outdoor enthusiasts to the outdoors. Yeah. I, I mean, every, every hunting conservation organization has come up with something to further that cause. You know, you mentioned NDA with field the fork, uh, pheasants forever has their women on the wing. Um, you know, that is the kind of stuff that we need. And those are the kind of people we need to entice to come into our community. And then we need to take it a step further. 
we need to also educate the existing hunters on why this is important, right? Because um, a lot of a lot of existing hunters think I don't want more people in the woods because that's just more competition. Or, you know, I I hunt to spend time with the guys. I don't really want a woman around. Um, we need to educate them on why it's important to expand the type of person that's also taking part in these activities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, that, that education prong of, of getting new people involved, it, it has so many different branches to it, right? It's, it's not just the, the non-hunter, right? it's, it's the current hunter. And I think that we're fairly fortunate, and let me know what you think about this, is we're, we're fortunate in the aspect of, you know, a lot of um, people who are, are, are doing this mentoring, I feel like are, are people kind of like around your and I's age who have kind of experienced old school hunting with growing up and then seeing how things have uh, kind of transitioned a bit to, to us kind of being uh, the voice uh, of hunters and anglers and outdoor uh, enthusiasts and, you know, using us as kind of that springboard for the, excuse me, for, uh, I guess, the, the non, um, non-participants, let's call it. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There, There's times that I just want a weekend with just, you know, my dad, my uncle and my grandfather, you know, the guys. Right. Uh, because there's something cathartic about that experience. But I also, you know, I also realize, like you said, there, this our generation of hunters also realizes the importance of getting non-traditional hunters into the hunting space. So while I'm going to make time for, you know, guy time, I'm also going to make time for non-traditional time and that's not necessarily hunting with someone that is a non-traditional hunter um you know that can be tough with with schedule of modern society sometimes it's just talking to someone about wildlife or about conservation or about hunting like you said that doesn't know um and just sort of trying to even in a brief five minute conversation trying to throw little educational tips out there for them yeah yeah absolutely and i think that yeah with with the day and age of social media and the internet and all that, I feel like it's, it's much easier uh, or it's more conducive to, to helping spread our message to, to a larger audience. I mean, sometimes that's, you know, to the detriment of, of hunters uh, because, you know, sometimes there's, there's bad apples in, in every group and the wrong message can get spread to, to the, to the people that you're trying to reach. But I think that we can, we can certainly do, uh, a lot of good with that as well. Yeah, that uh, social media is wonderful and terrible at the same time. You know, we have to people like you and myself and and the people that are spreading the the good gospel of hunting need to drown out the bad apples. And you know, sometimes these bad apples aren't people doing it purposefully. Um, they're sharing you know, an experience that they think everyone would be okay with. Uh, but that's not always the case. We, we need to, because of the small number of hunters in our nation, that small percentage of the population and the fact that hunters are taking life, we need to be very cognizant of the words and the images that we use and make sure that we're putting our best foot forward. Yeah. Because I still think that they're, like you said, there's there's a large group of non-hunters out there that look at hunters as kind of like the Elmer Fudd type 
um, hunter. You know what I mean? That, that, you know, people that like, that's unfortunately that like, that's kind of their only experiences, like what they've maybe seen in a cartoon or something like that. Right. And it's, 99% of the time that, you know, could not be further from the truth and further from, you know, the way hunters really conduct themselves in the woods. Yeah. I mean, the study just came out a couple years ago that 80% of people in the United States are okay. They agree with hunting for food. Um, you know, but even those 80 people that are like, yeah, it's okay to have hunting or 80% of people, um, that are like, yeah, it's okay to go hunting. They that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to see a picture on their news feed of me with a grip, you know, of a gripping grin with a buck that I shot. Right. But if I put a picture of, you know, that deer um, or the scenery uh, or something that's a little bit more tasteful, not blood everywhere, things like that. And in the post, I mentioned about how I'm going to utilize this animal as food. And then typically, especially when it's on Instagram and I have more than, you know, 240 characters or whatever it is, 140 characters, whatever it is on Twitter. I also mentioned that every pound of this venison that I'm going to eat is one pound less of beef. So that's theoretically better for for the environment. You know, when you can explain all the depth that goes into hunting, it, it makes people a lot more comfortable with the fact that an animal had to die. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I could not agree more with that. So kind of sticking with, you know, spreading the word and everything. I mean, so what was it that made you decide to, to go ahead and start the podcast? Or was that always kind of like a, uh, a branch to, to, you know, eventually starting the nonprofit and kind of helping do your part to, to spread that message? I mean, I mean, I, I know you've been doing it for, I mean, you've got what, close to 100 episodes somewhere in there, I believe? Yeah, almost up to 100 now. So, um, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, podcast was not even close to on my mind. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I'm i a big podcast listener. Um, I probably listen to close to um, somewhere between 15 and 20 hours of podcasts a week uh, because I don't listen to the radio. Right. Um, I don't need all those ads on the radio Um, when I'm doing housework, yard work, driving. I'm always listening to a podcast. That's just sort of my thing. Um, The outreach that I originally started with and has taken a back seat uh, since I've started a podcast because it was much more of a time commitment than I realized uh, was a blog. I decided I I would do a blog. Uh, I quickly learned that that takes a lot of time because I'm not an English major. So it takes a lot of (laughs) refining of what I'm trying to say for, uh, someone to understand the point I'm trying to get across. Um, I'm a talker. I I teach, right? Like I can stand in front of my students for 40 minutes and feel like I didn't quite get all the words out. I wanted to get out. (laughs) So a podcast just sort of seemed natural for me. I can just talk. I thought this will be easy. I'll just get a microphone. I'll talk. And, no problem. Uh, it'll be quick. I can get the information out much easier. Uh, it is easier, but it's still just as time consuming, especially in the format that I've tried to 
to build my podcast around like you have um you know trying to get guests on there's a lot of scheduling issues when it comes yeah. to that yep. uh trying to get guests that aren't uh, locally available is what's tough in the beginning, uh, has become easier now that everyone is, uh, well-versed in video conferencing for work now, thanks to, thanks to that wonderful pandemic that, w- that we've been going through. Right. Um, and then, you know, uh, it's still research beforehand, you know, researching the guests, researching the topic, making sure the, the questions I, I want to ask are relevant. Um, you know, so the, the time commitment's still there. The reason why I've kept doing it is because one, I enjoy talking about all things conservation and hunting. Uh, I think my wife enjoys that I have a podcast because now I don't talk to her about it as <laughs> quite as in depth, right? We talk about other things now. Sure. Um, but the other reason too is that literally everybody that I've reached out to to be a part of my show has been nothing but wonderful. Uh, even the people that have said no because they don't have the time uh, are still cordial about it. Um, and just the people in the conservation community are just absolutely wonderful people. And that's just kept me going. Uh, you know, it, it's a fun hobby. I enjoy learning the information I'm learning. And, you know, everything from learning about the Field to Fork program from uh, Hank Forster at, at NDA to learning about uh, how we can train dogs to help us in conservation, you know, for for detection of species. I mean, all this stuff is just fascinating to me. And now I feel like I have a front row seat to all this information. It's, it's quickly turned from something that wasn't even on my radar to something that I don't foresee myself stopping anytime soon. Yeah. And that's, uh, I kind of, I want to kind of echo the same thing is the people that I've been able to speak to, um, it's, it's great. And, you know, the, the stories uh, of people out there and the work that they're doing for conservation, you know, I wish there was as many podcasts about conservation as there are about, you know, hunting whitetails or, or hunting elk or something like that, because, you know, there's those are almost a dime a dozen anymore. Right. There's so many of them out there. And I mean, outside of, you know, maybe a handful of, of podcasts, I mean, how many are really dedicated to, to conservation and talking about, you know, what everyone should be aware of or should be, you know, top of mind uh, to some degree for, for any type of outdoor, you know, recreationist. Yeah. I mean, those hunting ones, I mean, those, those are the sexy things, right? For people that hunt, you know, we want to learn how to shoot the biggest buck or catch the biggest fish. I mean, that, that, those are the sexy podcasts. It's like the true crime podcast for a lot of people. You know, those are the sexy ones out there. Um, the educational ones, I mean, once you get out of school, do you really want to go back to school? Unless you're interested about that topic, you know, I don't blame people, but I'm right there with you. I wish there were more people doing, uh, podcasts on conservation or at least interweaving conservation topics into the outdoor topics that they're covering. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I feel like I have seen some that have tried to put a little bit more of an emphasis on the conservation side of things, which I think is awesome, especially for, for some of these individuals who have a, you know, a much, much larger reach than, you know, people like you or I do who, you know, for all intents and purposes are just, you know, we're just a couple of average guys who love the outdoors and we want to make sure that, that people understand the importance of it. Yeah. 
you know, there's there's a couple, you know, big ones out there that, you know, if you search Apple Podcasts, you know, for wilderness, like you're going to see some of the the big names out there. And, and anyone who knows anything about the outdoor industry knows who, you know, knows those names. And that is always I listen to those podcasts and it's always exciting for me. And my ears perk up a little bit more whenever they start talking about some conservation issues. And sometimes, you know, it's something that I don't even know about because it's a, a more Western podcast and I don't under, I don't know this issue. And right. now that they've brought it to my attention, I start looking into it. And now all of a sudden I have a new guest. So if I, I steal some of the information from some of those other podcasts, too. Well, that's all right, because I'm sure that. Yeah, I mean, different audiences, right? And I mean, I'm still kind of blown away when people reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I love the podcast. You know, I wasn't really sure, uh, you know, how I could get involved with conservation, you know, and listening to some of your episodes and some of your guests, like it's given me uh, some direction and things that I can do and research and look into on, on how I can become more involved, especially, you know, I get that from from people who are just kind of getting into hunting, maybe at a later stage in their life. So it's really cool. And like, that's, like that right there is like why I love doing it, right? Is when, when people send you those messages or reach out and, and kind of talk about, you know, the impact that the words of the guests have had on them and, and kind of inspire them uh, to get involved in conservation. Because ultimately, I mean, that's that's what we're here for, right? Is, is to educate. Yeah. It, you know, I started this podcast and all of a sudden it was like, holy crap, someone listened to this. And then all of a sudden <laughs> five people listened. And it's like, really? I can't get a classroom of 20 students to actively listen to me. But there, I have people now choosing to listen to me. And, um, you know, as those uh, total listens and weekly listens, as they, you know, as I watch them, it's like, man, I can't believe this many people are interested in the same thing that I'm interested in. And they're actually listening to my voice talk about them. Yeah. It gives you hope for the future. That's for sure. 100%. Yeah. So Jason, before we kind of wrap things up here, I always like to ask my guests uh, at the end here is, I mean, we're knocking on the door of hunting season um, kind of all across the country here. Some, some States open up, you know, later this month, uh, depending upon where you're at, but do you have any uh, like big trips or or big hunts or anything like that that you're excited for this year or just, you know, going to be spending time on the farm with family? Yeah. um, Well, so as we talked about real quick before we started recording, um, you know, my wife and I have a a brand new baby at home. So um, I purposefully did not plan any big trips this year. Um, I I did have a, a pheasant hunting trip to North Dakota last year with my dad. Uh, and that was sort of knowing that was going to be sort of like the, probably the last hurrah for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so no big hunting trips this year. It's going to be time spent, you know, just up at camp, uh, with family hunting deer, um, taking, you know, some, some trips around home for, uh, pheasants with my dad and my bird dog. Um, that, that's really all I'm going to be doing this year. But, you know, having this, this new baby is having me dreaming of the future where he starts coming with, with me on maybe some of these trips that I've been able, been fortunate enough to be able to do with my father, uh, you know, the last couple of years. Yeah. And, and that's, that's super exciting. I mean, obviously I, I mentioned earlier, but congratulations on that. I mean, becoming uh, a parent for the first time, a father for the first time is it's, uh, it's, it's obviously a, a life-changing experience, but for all the right reasons. And, you know, I think, and we'll have to touch base again down the road. And I think you're going to almost have like, you know, an even greater appreciation for the outdoors now that you have someone that you can pass that on to, um, you know, directly and someone who you can, you know, 
have a you know kind of 24 7 effect on um in terms of you know helping them appreciate the outdoors the same way your dad and your grandpa and uncle did for you i mean that's that's an exciting thing and the first time you, you get a chance to to get outdoors with your son i mean it's it's incredible man i took my daughter out uh deer hunting for the first time last year and i mean she lasted like uh, shoot 45 minutes maybe uh and, and we were in this you know big box blind or whatever during archery season and you know, I had found this old like a uh, recurve bow of like my father-in-law's that hasn't been shot in 25, 30 years just for her to carry out there with her. And she, I mean, she was just so excited and it's just, it's, it's such a, a cool experience and man, I can't wait for you to, uh, to be able to experience that with your son. Yeah. A, a month is a, a month old is a little too early, but yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely chomping at the bit to even just take him on his first hike, you yeah. know, where I'm carrying him in that, in that front carrier and he yep. can, you know, see the the wind blowing the leaves. So I'm, I'm real excited about that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Hey, real quick, Jason, where can people, uh, find the website, uh, find your podcast, everything like that. Uh, so the podcast is found on every streaming app that you could possibly think of, podcast streaming app you could possibly think of. Uh, you can also find it at uh, our website, uh, conservewild.org. It's under the podcast tab. Um, and if anyone would like to, thinks that you know the urbanization is a problem and, and would like to help get this uh help support the podcast and help get the nonprofit off the ground. Uh, we do have a Patreon page as well. They can find a link to that, uh, at conservewild.org. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much for taking some time to hop on today. Thank you for all the incredible work, uh, that you're doing, uh, through, uh, the website, through the podcast, you know, helping spread the, the good word of conservation. And, you know, I wish you nothing but success, uh, in the future and, you know, hopefully we can get you on again here down the road. Yeah, absolutely. I had a had a blast and I'm always up for talking conservation. All right. All right, Jason, we'll uh, take care of yourself and try and get some sleep around there. <laughs> we'll try. All right. Take care, man. See you. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks again to Jason for taking some time to join me on the podcast today. Uh, definitely be sure to check out his podcast. Again, that's Conservation Unfiltered Podcast. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, uh, Stone Glacier and Go Hunt, as well as Wild Rivers Coffee. Uh, also, please be sure to support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive content so you'll enjoy those conservation-focused posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jason. Remember, stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.